everyone, welcome back to the Funboat Diplomacy Podcast. Today I'm going to try something a little new. It's going to be readings from one of my favorite authors, Charles Bukowski, from his book. Uh, well, it's actually not his book, it's a collection of his writings. Someone else compiled this uh, at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. But it's just a couple of uh, little short stories that he published in journals and and uh, and small communist pop publications back in the day uh, that were put together in this book called More Notes of a Dirty Old Man. And my experience with Bukowski goes back to this one morning when I was living in San Francisco. Um, I was living, I was working in living at a hostel and I was in I was living in a four bed dorm with uh, people I worked with and I happened to be on the bottom bunk next to a windowsill and there was one morning I, I, I woke up and I didn't really have a, a plan of anything to do so I uh, at some point I sat up and looked at this stack of books next to me on the windowsill and I those those are books that are put there by me and just books that I had to, I don't know, was interested in reading that I had grabbed from the free bookshelf. But someone, or something, whatever, some force, some mysterious force had put Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski on the top of that stack. Um, I didn't see it in the, the bookshelf, I didn't put it there, but it happened to be on the top of the stack, and so I picked it up and started reading it, and it was the first time... I can think of. I don't think there's been another time where I was just sitting there by myself reading and laughing out loud at what I was reading because it's something very. There's a very dark humor to Charles Bukowski's uh, writing. He he talks about really hard parts of his life with really sharp and um, and insightful humor that it. It just sort of comes out of of people who have gone through such just such difficulty, like getting beat by his father, um, being physically assaulted by the women in his life, uh, and then um, his alcoholism. That's a big big thing as well. A lot of his writings have to do with this type of uh, these types of dynamics. So it has a lot to do with his uh, his experience with his his parents. It has a lot to do with people he meets, both in school and the work life, uh, people who he meets because they are interested in his writings. And then he has lots of descriptions about his obsession with women, especially their legs and their hair, and his complete adoration of drinking. He really... Um, I think at one point in an interview said that that drinking when he first discovered drinking he said this is going to work this is going to be what really uh, fuels what he does and also in Ham on Rye he talks about how he was just always drinking and didn't have enough food actually or money for food he would eat a payday bar at the end of his his day of writing, he would sit down on his typewriter and get really drunk and just write for the whole day and then end the day with probably more to drink, but also importantly, um, for nutrition, he ate a candy bar. And another thing I really truly love about 
Bukowski is that he really doesn't sugarcoat how life is. And his life, as I said before, was so rough, but he sees some sort of beauty in this difficulty. He even said that it was his his father was the 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 impetus of his writing because of the his beatings every every night and the it's also important for him that you know people are imperfect and that's totally okay and and there's there's uh nobody who's really perfect and it kind of seems that people are trying to come off as if they are perfect and the way he sees it he's, he he thinks that he's the biggest loser and even then there's something remarkably spectacular about his life so this guy's he's, he's he had a hard time and it really comes through in his writings but there's such such humor but it comes through in such a heartfelt way and humorous way that i really have been in love with his his writing for a long time and it's not a long time like two years it's a long time for me but he has become uh, among my favorite writers in, in recent times so i'm going to be picking a couple of short stories from more notes of a dirty old man and the version i have doesn't have any titles um, for each of these short stories i don't know if that's the case in the printed version but these are more in the beginning of the of the collection. Uh, I'll, I might pick some more for a later podcast. But I've I've read half of the the, the collection so far, and I've I've just picked a few. So here we go. This is the first short story. God knows I'm not too hippy. Perhaps because I'm too much around the hip, and I fear fads. For like anybody else, I like something that tends to last. Then, too, the hippie foundation, or diving board, or resting place, or whatever you want to call it, does suck its fair share of fakes, promoters, and generally vicious people trying to overcompensate for some heinous psychological defect. But you have these everywhere, hippie and non-hippie. But like I say, the few people that I know are either a bit on the side of the artistic, the pro-hip, or the understanding hip. So I have been generally getting more of this slice of cake, and it has seemed a bit sweet. But lo, the other day, I got the other bit, and I think I'd rather eat sweet than shit. Being locked into a dark building where 4,000 people work at dull and menial tasks has its compensations, but it has disadvantages too. For instance, you can never be sure who is going to be assigned to work next to you. A bad soul makes for a worse night. Enough bad souls can kill you. He was a balding, square-jawed mannish, with this look of hate-frustration upon his face. For months I had sensed that he had wanted to talk to me. Now I was hooked. He was assigned to the place to my left. He complained about the air conditioning and a few other things, then worked in a question about my age. I told him that I would be 47 in August. He said he was 49. Age is only relative, he said. It doesn't matter if you're 47 or 49. It doesn't make any difference. 
Um, I said. Then the speaker screamed out some announcement. All those qualified on the LSM machines report to... I thought they were going to say LSD, he said. Um, I said. You know, he said, that LSD has put a lot of people in madhouses. Brain damage. Everything puts people in madhouses. What you mean? I mean, the LSD brain damage scare is probably an exaggeration, percentage-wise. No, oh, no, leading doctors in laboratories and hospitals say so. Okay. We worked away without conversation for a while, and I thought I had escaped him. He had one of those easy, mellow voices that drowned and warbled in its own conviction. But he began again. Are you for LSD? I don't use it. Don't you think it's a passing fad? Nothing that is against the law ever ceases to exist. What you mean? Forget it. What you think about hippies? They don't harm me. Their hair stinks, he said. They don't take baths. They don't work. I don't like to work either. Anything that is unproductive is not good for society. Um, some college profs say that these kids are our new leaders, that we should listen to them. How the hell can they know anything? They don't have any experience. Experience is dull. With most men, experience is a series of mistakes. The more experience you have, the less you know. You mean to say that you're going to listen to what some 13-year-old kid tells you? I listen to everything. But they aren't mature. They aren't mature, don't you see? That's why they're hippies. Suppose they got jobs. Suppose they went to the industry. Went to work, turning bolts for General Motors. Wouldn't they still be immature? No, because they'd be working, he said. Um... Furthermore, I think a lot of these kids are going to be sorry that they didn't go to the war. It's going to be an experience they'll wish they hadn't missed. They're going to regret it later on. Um... There fell again the peaceful silence. Then he said, You aren't a hippie, are you? I'm working, damn it. And I told you, I was 47. The beard doesn't mean anything then, does it? Sure it does. It means at the moment, I feel better wearing a beard than I do the other way. Maybe next week it'll be different. Silence. Silence. Then he switched the stool, turned his back to me as much as possible, and continued working. I got up and walked to the men's crapper and stuck my head out the window for fresh air. The guy was my father all over again. Responsibility, society, country, duty, maturity, all the dull-sounding hard words. But why were they in such agony? Why did they hate so much? It seemed simply that they were very much afraid that somebody else was having a damn good time or was not unhappy most of the time. It seemed that they wanted everybody to carry the same damn heavy rock they were carrying. It wasn't enough that I was working beside him like an idiot. It wasn't enough for him that I was wasting the few good hours left in my life. No, he also wanted me to share his own mind-soul, to sniff his dirty stockings, to chew on his angers and hates with him. I was not paid for that, the fucker. And that's what killed you on the job, 
not the actual physical work, but being closed in with the dead. I got on back to my stool. He had his back turned to me. Poor, poor fellow. I had let him down. He'd have to look elsewhere. And I was white, and he was white, and most of them were black. Where are you going to find a decent white man in a place like this? I could sense him thinking. I suppose he would have gotten around to the Negro question if I had sent out the proper rays. I had been spared that. His back was to me. His back was broad, American, and hard. But I couldn't see his face, and he didn't speak anymore. What had hurt him worst was that I had neither agreed or argued with him. His back was to me. The remainder of the night was peaceful and almost kind. So that was the first story. I'm going to move on now to the second short story. I was going over my old racing forms, having a beer and a smoke, really hungover, shaky, depressed, gently thinking of suicide, but still hoping for a lucky angel when there was a knock on the door, a very light knock. I barely heard it. I listened, and there it was again. I hid my bag of Chesterfields under the fireplace and opened the door just a slit. Bukowski, said the voice. Charles Bukowski. And there was this woman standing out in the light rain, in the 9 p.m. rain between two dying plants on the front porch of the front court in which I lived, badly among beer and mouse shadows and old copies of Upton Sinclair and Thomas Wolfe and Sinclair Lewis, and I looked out, looked out, and it was a woman, and what a woman in that 9 p.m. rain, long red hair all down the back, Jesus, tons of red miracle, and the face open with passion, like a flower ripped open with the fingers from the bud, a kind of fire cheating, and the body, the body was nothing but sex. Sex, standing still, jumping, singing, looking, flowing, humming in the 9 p.m. rain, saying, Bukowski? Charles Bukowski? And I said, come on in. And she did. She came in and sat on the chair in front of the fireplace, and the walls of the room began to weave in and out like on a trip. And the rug said, What the hell? Oh my god. Oh. And she crossed her legs, and the skirt was high, and I looked up the thighs boldly. Jesus, I was out of my skull. Thighs, knees, high heels, long tight stockings, flow and flesh, Oh, Lord, and she kicked her foot, turn on ankle. Mercy, and the red hair, the red hair flocked all along the back of the chair, the red hair on fire in the lamplight. I could barely hold on. I could barely understand. I did not deserve to even look, and I knew it. Care for a beer, I asked. All right, she said. I got up and I could hardly walk. I had enough hose to put out a forest fire of napalm. I came back with a beer, didn't give her a glass 
watched her drink it from the bottle. That stuff's going into her. Into her red hair, into her body, into her everywhere. And I peered up her legs, not getting enough. And I drank out of the bottle. She put down her bottle. You are a great writer, she said. That's no reason for coming to see me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You see, you fascinate me. You write this way, and you look like... You look like... The trash man? Yes, or a, a diseased gorilla. An undergrown, aged gorilla dying of cancer. And those goddamn eyes. Slits of eyes. But when you finally open them, just for that second, shit. I never saw eyes like that. That color. That vicious fire. And you came here to see what I was. See what I am, huh? I guess so. I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. I don't. I only know that I'm here. I can't help it. You're a gorilla. You're some kind of snake. You're anything filthy. You're stink. I don't know you. I know that you're not the guy at Brian's staff meetings, threatening cripples, staggering around the room, cursing everybody and looking for more to drink, more to drink, more to drink. Such a swine you are. A woman always wants to find the core, tame it, mold it. A wise man never shows the core to a woman. He just gives her a shot of light, shuts it off, becomes himself again. A woman practices rearing the child by taming the man first. I've got no use for women except to fuck them. I won't be trapped in. Love is a form of selfishness. Love is an excuse for cowards to quit. Nicely spoken. Sounds all right. Bastard, but what does it mean? She lifted her beer bottle again, recrossed her legs, the skirt going higher. Jesus have mercy, the skirt going higher. All that leg, all that thigh, all that red hair. God! I got up, pulled the beer bottle from her mouth, and put my dirty bearded face to hers, my lips sucking and twisting at hers, hard, full crazy. She did not push me away. I grabbed her under the back. I had her back arched. I had her head rolling on the back of the chair, our lips splashed together, spliced together, crazy. My hand under the back of that big body. God. The beer bottle knocked over and spewing on the floor. And I reached down with the other hand and ripped her skirt all the way up. Lord, Lord, Lord. Then I had her standing. I was walking, pushing her all over the room, feeling that red hair around my ears, across my face, feeling miracle and madness and then i worked the pants down and then i had her i had her i had her and i worked i grabbed that long red hair and i yanked down on it i had her back arched arched hurting her and i had her i worked and holding the hair still in my hands in back i got the cheeks and spread them. I had her nailed in the center of the rug. I had her on the cross. It was too late for her. She was on the spike, ripped, 
ripped, and the yellow light from the lamps bathed us, and all that could be heard was our breathing and our grappling. Who would have guessed? Who? And then bang! The wall shook. A man on the street stepped on a grease spot, fell and broke his ankle, and we split apart like worms going their different directions, and she stood there and said, Oh, oh, I liked it. I liked it. I liked it. You filthy, greasy pig. And then she turned and walked into the bathroom and closed the door. I went into the kitchen, took a dish towel, wiped off, got out two more beers, lit a smoke. She came out, looking better than ever. She glowed all over, burning. She was really beautiful. I could say it easy. She was really beautiful. I drank my beer and looked at her. Neither of us saying anything. I lit her a cigarette. Then I had to piss. I went to the bathroom, closed the door, pissed, flushed, washed my hands, came out, and she was gone. Fast like that. No goodbye. Nothing. I looked at the chair she had sat in. At the beer bottle on the floor. No, it had happened. Yes. I found one of her earrings. A green earring. Just one. It's always one earring. What the hell? But never an earring like this. I drank my beer straight down, walked outside. It was cold. All up and down, to Longpre, it was the same. People locked in tight, behind doors, behind windows, everybody with their possessions, their people, their madness, their bank accounts, their car keys, their walnut faces, their constipation. I looked north, where I figured she lived, with some fine intellectual chap who spoke the big words and the big meaning. Some guys got these dolls automatically. I was lucky to see a photo in a newspaper. I took the earring, the green earring, and threw it north, hard, high in the dark sky. It flew out of sight in the neon mash of light from Sunset Boulevard, a block north, and I said, here baby, your earring back and your life and all the rest, baby baby, but thanks for the splendid grade triple-A fuck. Then I went back inside, found her still untouched beer. Picked it up, drank, drank, drank. Found the racing form, sat down in her chair and began checking out my plays for the Santa Anita meet. And then I found one long red hair, one very long red hair, along the arm of my chair, and I picked it up and touched the end of it to my cigarette. It sizzled and shriveled and smoked ever so slightly, I moved the cigarette right up along the hair until it was all burned except to the smallest bit in my fingers, and then I put that in the ashtray and burned that. Charles Bukowski, immortal writer, immortal lover, you can't go home again, it's all too late. I worked at the beer. And this one will be the last and final story that I read on this podcast from More Notes the dirty old man. It's a world. It's a world of potential suicides. While I speak mostly of the United States, I don't know about the rest, but it's a place of potential and actual suicides. And hundreds of thousands of lonely women 
women just aching for companionship. And then there are the men, going mad, masturbating, dreaming. Hundreds and thousands of men going mad for sex or love or anything. And meanwhile, all these people, the love lost, the sex lost, the suicide driven, they're all working these dull, soul-sucking jobs that twist their faces like rotten lemons and pinch their spirits out, out, out. Somewhere in the structure of our society, it is impossible for these people to connect to each other. Churches, dances, parties only seem to push them further apart, and the dating clubs, the computer love machines, only destroy more and more a naturalness that should have been, a naturalness that has somehow been crushed and seems to remain crushed forever in our present method of living, dying. See them put on their bright clothes and get into their new cars and roar off to nowhere. It's all an outside maneuver and the contact is missed. The other night, at somebody else's suggestion, we drove down Hollywood Boulevard. I've lived in Los Angeles off and on since 1922, and I don't believe I have driven down Hollywood Boulevard more than half a dozen times. I'm eaten by my own madness. It was a Friday night, and here they drove slowly. The street was jammed. The people in the cars were watching the people on the sidewalks. And the people on the sidewalks were walking down, looking at the closed store windows. Here and there, a movie house showing movies of people supposedly living. Further on were a few clubs and bars, but nobody went in. Nobody was spending any money. Nobody was doing anything. They just watched and drove and walked. I suppose there was action enough somewhere, but hardly there, and hardly for the masses. Here they worked all week on jobs they hated, and now, given the slightest bit of leisure time, they wasted it, they murdered it. It was more than I cared to have a lengthy view of. I turned off the boulevard, found Fountain Avenue, and drove back towards Los Angeles. I sit here playing writer each day, and my typer faces the street. I live in a front court, and I don't consciously work. Wait, that's a mistake. I do consciously work, but I don't consciously watch. But toward evening, I see them coming in, walking and driving. Most of them are young ladies who live alone in all these high-rise apartments which surround me. Some of them are fairly attractive, and most of them are well-dressed, but something has been beaten out of them. That eight-hour job of doing an obnoxious thing for their own survival and for somebody else's profit had worked them over well. These ladies immediately disappear into the high-rise walls, close the apartment door, and vanish forever. From the cubicle of the job to the cubicle of resting and waiting to return to the job, the job is the center. The job is the sun. The job is the mother's breast. To be jobless is the sin. To be lifeless doesn't matter. Of course, one must consider their side. A job is money, and to be moneyless is not comfortable. I know enough about this, 
and every person can't be an artist that is a painter a musician a composer a writer whatever many lack the talent many lack the courage most lack both even artists can't remain artists forever especially good artists who can earn enough to survive within their craft the talent goes the courage goes something goes what's left for the average person but an occupation that must finally kill the spirit i'm very sorry for instance for my own doctor now certainly here is a person who could afford a training that might put him into a profession more enlightening than a punch press operator but i sit in his packard waiting room and see that he is that he too is caught he hustles his patients in and out barely asking them what is wrong with them he weighs them gives them a pill and now and then sticks a snake up their ass if something further goes wrong he might suggest a hospital an operation he must pay office rent receptionist rent and have a wife in his home an acceptable doctor's wife in an acceptable doctor's home his life is simply a durable hell his children too might become doctors if he can educate them very well i watch my ladies vanish into their high-rise walls to shower and eat and watch and watch tv read the paper phone joyce then smear themselves with cream set the alarm and sleep i am not a woman but i must imagine that some of them have sexual drives and wish for male companionship and love it must be so but there's the job and there's nobody down there my god there's the weekend what to do with the weekend those sons of bitches just want to get in my panties that's all hit and run goodbye who wants to be part of a cunt pile everybody's blocked off from each other finally out of desperation and advancing age a man is chosen first perhaps for sexual pleasure and then later for marriage a marriage that never works a marriage that becomes dull and desperate another durable hell or maybe an unendurable one marriage is a contract to live in dullness until death do us part what else than prostitution Ugh. hundreds of thousands of lonely and frustrated men and women living mostly without sex and certainly without love working at jobs they hate running red lights crashing into fire plugs and store windows gambling drinking taking dope smoking two packs a day masturbating going crazy going crazier and crazier getting religious buying goldfish and cats and monkeys hundreds of thousands of lonely and frustrated men and women who settle for disneyland instead of love who settle for a baseball game instead of sex hundreds of thousands of lonely and frustrated men and women who will pass each other on the sidewalk and be afraid to look at each other's faces at each other's eyes for fear they'll be accused of being on the make blocks and walls of horror movie magazines girly magazines nudie magazines nude movies vibrators dirty jokes everything but contact and real action i must guess that the united states must be the loneliest place in the world with england not far behind 
Too often, I'd heard the guys talk on the job about the wild times they had in the army, the drunks, the whores. When I asked them, what are you doing now? Why did you stop? I got these strange looks. It's simple. They're afraid, here, now, in civilian life. Have to keep the job, have to pay the car, have to... No army to take care of them now. No three square meals, no bunk, no sure payday, no Uncle Sam to cure their clap. Their wildness, their courage was regulated and safe enough. I tell you, we must be on the most backward nation on the earth. In our prisons, we do not believe in allowing the men even limited sexual relationships with the opposite sex. Yet we wonder why the men molest and ravage each other in desperation. You say they made a mistake? Crime is the definition of it. Suppose you made a mistake. Would you like to be beaten by a dozen men and made into a sexual idiot? What judge passed that sentence? It's strange that in one of the most backward states, Mississippi, certain inmates are allowed to have limited sexual relationships with women, even though... Most of them are or pose as wives from the outside. We murder ourselves with sex and occupation. The madhouses crawl with sexually maladjusted and occupationally destroyed people. Answers? Who knows? We're structured in. The bars are heavy. The other day, I stopped for gas. I don't know how it got around to the subject. I think a woman walked by, and that started it. But the attendant said... I haven't had a piece of ass in five years. I laughed. You're kidding, man. No, I'm serious. Five years now. He was in his 20s. I drove away thinking about what a friend of mine had said. Where are the women? Tell me, where are they? Where is the action? There's none. It's a desert. My friend drives from Los Angeles to Mexico each weekend to fulfill his sexual desires in a whorehouse. I don't know my friends. Look at these walls. Look at these people. Look at these faces, these streets. We've all locked ourselves up. The rapists come out at night, and the murderers and the ladies lock themselves in and wait for the big one, the dream man, the money and soul man, the man of brilliant conversation, the man that mama might like. Set the alarm. He may walk in on the job tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, Surely he's out there. These sons of bitches just want to get into my panties. I wonder what Bukowski's like. Alright, so that was the third one, and I'm actually going to do a bonus one that has to do with what, at the end here, Bukowski calls the history of the second American Revolution. And it's a guy's experience during a sort of alternate reality where the American society falls apart, the Russians and the Chinese uh, threaten to um, to intervene in the United States, and there's revolutionaries, there's the U.S. government going at like a, basically a civil war against each other, and it's something that's not so far off um, from the realm of possibility these days, what with a crazy, incompetent president and overblown state, federal government and uh, crisis in the, um, the monetary policy, the 
currency itself and people not having savings, things like this. That's that's what I see. Um, so it's it's something that could happen in the future, and it's uh, it's funny to, to to read about in this kind of dark humor way. So uh, yeah, let's get into this. Robert had twenty nine cans of food in the closet, and a five gallon jug of sparklets, also candles and a 32 with plenty of shells. The water had been cut off the second day, but the power was still on. What had started as a series of spontaneous riots had evolved into something that nobody quite understood. All stores, gas stations, supplies of every sort had been looted in the first days. In a sense, it was a nationwide revolution, but exactly who was revolting and who wasn't, the matter wasn't clear. The fire department, after numerous casualties, had ceased to put out fires. Half of Los Angeles was on fire. People were homeless, men, women, children, hiding where they could. They were not roaming, but hiding, trying to hide, trying to exist. The police, the National Guard, and the U.S. Army attempted to control the streets, and control meant killing all others who were upon them. Basically. It had become a war between the uniformed and the non-uniformed, and worse, through fear, had evolved into a war between black and white, a war between white and white, and black and black, and all the colors in between. Each man seemed a unit divided until something happened. The revolution had no central leadership, and so its demands and ambitions were hazy. There seemed no way it could surrender, there also seemed no way it could win. Robert could understand neither the revolutionaries or the government. Both left him with more than a bad taste. But he had always been an odd guy, not fitting anywhere. Now it had broken down into man against man, which it had always been, but now it was clear. They were back to the caves, and every man, beast, every weather was the enemy. The centuries had burned back down. Luckily, Robert had three-fifths of scotch and three-fourths of a lid of grass, ten packs of bull durham, and plenty of zigzag, all of which helped the spirit. Also, he was a natural loner, and, all in all, the situation which existed was not far from the one he had existed in before the revolution. His greatest joy had always been solitude, albeit cut within occasional piece of ass, a bit of Mahler or Stravinsky, a joint or two, and a good night's drunk. The gas and water were shut off, and he had all the windows nail closed, and kept the night latch on the door. Late at night, he would open the door and throw out his excretia and urine, all the garbage. It was more dangerous to go out and attempt to bury it. Constant firing was heard in the streets. Bodies were left where they fell. Rats, dogs, cats prowled the streets, ripping pieces of flesh off dead bodies. Maggots and flies were everywhere. Robert knew it wouldn't be long before the electricity went. He turned on the radio. He had never purchased a TV set. Some of the radio stations were replaying the president's message over and over. For all he knew, the president was dead, but... He still heard the message over and over. My fellow Americans, never has this great nation been in such agony and fear and 
chaos, but we will come through. And after this is over, we will cleanse our ranks of the cowards and backstabbers who have weakened us. We will be a greater nation than ever before. Growth is oftentimes accompanied by pain. At this moment, we are feeling this pain. We are feeling it very much. But listen, we will grow to an even greater manhood. We will rid our land of this pestilence and of these pests. We will rid our land of the insects that have sucked our blood. Have faith, God and country will prevail. Have faith, I beg you, and this hour will not be our death, but our rebirth into greater freedom, a greater freedom than any ever known to man in the history of the world. Meanwhile, it is my duty to inform you that two nations, Russia and China, have banded together and given us an ultimatum, this ultimatum being that we will have until October 25th to surrender all our governmental powers to them. The United States of America has never surrendered, and we do not intend to do so now. Should Russia or China, either or both, attempt any invasion or any move at all, which we shall consider hostile, we will release immediately upon them our nuclear force, which at this time is four times greater than all the combined nuclear power of all the nations on Earth. The United States of America, troubled from within and without, will persevere. Don't doubt her unless you doubt your very own soul. God, might, and freedom will shine throughout the world tonight, tomorrow, and forever. Robert turned the dial. And this station is still in control of the rebels. Brothers, this hour is ours. This is truth at last. Come face to face with the imprisonment of man, with the materialistic and spiritual degradation of man. This revolution, this effort of ours, cannot be compared to any revolution in the history of the world, for at last man has awakened to what he wants, and what he really wants is the freedom to form and live his life in any damned way he pleases, to wear the clothes he wishes to, to fuck in the streets, to smoke pot, to paint, to do nothing or something or everything. We demand materialistic needs if we need them, and we demand spiritualistic needs which are forever needed. This eight-hour job be damned. Our job, and it isn't a job at all, is to enjoy life as we wish it. But some of us must die first. Many of us must. So those of us who are left will be able to live as humans instead of as driven beasts. The spirit of man has risen at last to swallow his subnormal keeper. Damn the President of the United States, and damn and break this torture chamber which has enslaved us all too long. Right on. Robert turned off the radio. He walked into the bedroom, stretched out on the bed, and jacked off. He wiped off on the sheet, got up, decided that he was hungry, but he was strictly rationing himself. He decided upon a can of cold beans. He walked to the refrigerator and opened the door. The inside light didn't go on. He walked over to a light switch and flipped it on. No overhead light. Back in the front room, the radio didn't work. The power was off. He had four boxes containing twelve candles each, but darkness was better, and 
It was night. He forgot the beans and sat down, rolled a smoke. He listened to the shooting. He sat there perhaps an hour when he heard a knock on the door. Brother, Robert heard a voice. Brother, help me. He sat still. Brother, brother, help me. Mercy, God Almighty, isn't there any mercy in your soul? Oh, Jesus. It sounded like an old man. Robert took the latch off the thirty-two and walked up behind the door. Yeah? Brother, please, God Almighty. Robert opened a small side panel near the door. It was an old, white-haired guy, maybe in his late sixties or seventies. He was in rags, flat upon his body, on the porch. Brother, I'm dying. A cup of water. I beg you, only a cup of water and I'll go. Will you go then? Yes, yes, believe me. Robert opened the door. The guy began to crawl forward. The door was only open a notch. The old guy tried to push the door open wide with his arm. Robert looked up in time to see three young guys rushing from around the hedge. He fired. The leading guy screamed, grabbed his belly, and fell forward. Then Robert kicked the old guy in the mouth, pushed his head out the door, and got the latch on just before the moment the two guys, who had paused a moment, hit the door. Robert's door had been glass, but he had braced it particularly with boards. The shade was down. Robert pulled the shade up, dropped to his belly, saw a piece of one of the guys through the boards and glass, fired. He got him in the chest. The other guy leapt off the porch. Robert couldn't see the old man. The phone rang. Robert walked over and picked it up. Robert Grissom? Someone asked. Grissom isn't here, Robert said. Come on, Bobby. We've got you by the balls. What? CIA, Bobby. Your game is up. I don't understand. I thought the power was off. How can you phone me? Don't worry your ass, Bobby. We've got you by the balls. I've always been apolitical. There's no such thing as apolitical, Bobby, baby. You're wrong, Robert said. I don't think a man has to be a registered Democrat in order to go to hell. We found some things in your writings, Bobby. Shit. Yeah, there's a lot of that, too. You didn't think we were watching you, eh, Bobby? You thought you could feed us that apolitical bullshit, huh? Well, we happen to know who you're pulling for, kid. Kid, I'm 55. In fact, today's my... We know, Bobby. We're coming right over with your birthday cake. Robert hung up. He pulled down all the shades except for a small peek through area at the bottom of each. Got down flat on his belly with his thirty-two and with his, with all his shells around him. Then he got up and got the can of urine out of the bathroom and put several rags next to it. He learned an old trick. Urinate on a handkerchief, hold it over your nose, and you strain out a great deal of poison gas. Grissom, come out. You have sixty seconds. Robert lifted the thirty-two and shot out the side window. He heard a scream. The impossible had happened. He had hit somebody. The first canister of gas came lobbing into the room. Robert picked up his shells and the rags and the can of urine, ran into the bedroom, closed the door, and climbed under his bed. He dipped the rag into the can of urine and put it over his nose and mouth. The ultraviolet ray glasses were already taped around his skull. It was an attempt to seal the eyes from any possible tear gas. And there under the bed he grinned, just a bit, and watched the bedroom door for whoever wanted to be an immediate part of chapter one in the history of the second American Revolution. Down there, under the bed, 
he noticed that he wasn't a very good housekeeper. Several missing stockings and undershirt, various gatherings of dust. It was one hell of a way to end a literary career. Not one pair of panties, a love letter, or a box of tampacks about. And the Pulitzer Prize looked more impossible than ever. All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode with the, a bit of a taster of the works of Charles Bukowski. And I think I'll be revisiting his works and doing short episodes like this uh, because he, uh, he has a great writing style and... Uh, great flow of uh, of voice, and I think uh, it's it's nice to be reminded of of the perspective, his perspective uh, of a strangely humorous pessimism from time to time. And I do think I will uh, do a lot more of these book reading type podcast episodes in the future because it's good to reflect on what you've read I, I read a lot of novels on my own i actually don't do a lot of the readings for school but i i do uh, readings on the side by myself um, and take notes and uh, see what i get out of that i usually do get more out of reading novels and things on my own on on pdfs uh, than i do just uh, reading reading this theoretical ivory tower type academic stuff that is assigned to me uh, at university so yep uh, thank you for listening i hope you tune in next week to the fun boat diplomacy podcast